0: And David is one of the world's leading thinkers on issues of crime and punishment and how they relate to the growth of the welfare state and to issues of social justice and inequality and, more broadly, social organization. And he truly brings together law and sociology and has throughout his career. He was previously on the faculty of Edinburgh University's Law School. Um, But at NYU, he has always held a joint appointment in law and sociology, and he has authored a range of critical and important books um, on the issues of the death penalty, on the issues of uh, punishment and the welfare state, and a host of other topics. But if I keep talking, we won't have David talk, and that would be a loss. So let me welcome David, and at the end of his remarks, we will have our own Professor Nicola Lacey. From um, the law school, the Gender Institute, and uh, the uh, social administration at the LSE. And Nikki will respond briefly to David's remarks, and that will set the tone for you to respond to David's marks, remarks with your questions. So please join me in welcoming David Garland to speak about what is the welfare state. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much indeed, Craig. Um, Craig was my Head of Department in Sociology at NYU for a long time, and so now for the next three weeks he's my sort of Head of School Director for um, another period. Um, It's really a delight to be here and to visit London School of Economics, but there's something a little odd and disconcerting about someone who's just off the airplane from the USA Talking about the welfare state at the LSE, it seems like the phrase would be carrying coals to Newcastle, and I'm sure some of you are already thinking this. And in fact, had I been based at the LSE um, the whole time, I'm pretty sure I would never have ventured to write about the welfare state. I would never have felt the need. Other people were doing it more than adequately. And I would never have felt qualified. After all, most of what I work on is crime and justice, uh, sociology of punishment and so on. The welfare state's been always in the background. I'm by no means an expert on it. However, um, two things are true. One is that I'm a child of the British welfare state, born in Dundee, 1945, grew up here um, and attended great state institutions for all of my life. And then I moved to the USA about 20 years ago, um, or at least I've spent 20 years in the USA. Um, And while there, I'm just continually, and it never stops, astonished um, at the web of misunderstandings that prevent my fellow Americans, and they are fellow Americans now, from actually understanding or having a clue about the welfare state and what it actually is. Um, There's at least one friend of mine, an American in the audience, and he may or may not attest to this fact. (laughs) So I'm kind of characterizing American misunderstandings. You can be, Michael, the representative of it. Um, Most Americans do, of course, have a a fairly uh, robust idea of what uh, the New Deal was. And they certainly uh, cherish institutions like... Social Security and Medicare, they care about these very much. But they would rarely think of associating these robustly American institutions with something as decidedly European as the welfare state. So whenever that phrase, the welfare state, um, crops up in public discourse, it's generally being associated either with dependency producing poor relief on the one hand or else freedom denying socialism on the other. In other words, the concept of the welfare state in the USA is buried beneath a kind of ideological layer and layer of obfuscation. And what I want to do um, in the, the project I'm currently working on is really just engage in a kind of public sociology, to try to do what scholars ought now and then to do, namely to clarify institutions when these institutions are misunderstood in political discourse by the public and the media and so on. So that's my current project, um, and the LSE is probably the last audience that needs me to explain the welfare state to them. Let me just say why. You know who these people are? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that Clement Attlee had been a lecturer at the LSE for Absolutely. De- decades, in fact, from 1930 on. This is Tom Marshall, T.H. Marshall, Richard Titmus, Brian Abel Smith, Peter Townsend, and just in case anyone's actually from this class, the LSE Department of Social Science and Administration 1971. Anyway, LSE is the last place that needs this kind of lecture, but nonetheless, here it is. What I'm going to try and do is explain in very direct and accessible terms what the welfare state is, how it works and sometimes doesn't work, and why it is, in one form or another, an essential feature of modern capitalist societies. So some of the misunderstandings that surround the welfare state actually stem from the name itself, Um, and you'll be um, maybe not surprised, I was a little surprised to find that not just William Beveridge, but also Richard Titmuss and T.H. Marshall studiously avoided the phrase welfare state, regarded it as one of the kind of phrases of the enemies of social policy and the social institutions that developed from the 40s onwards. Um, but nonetheless, the, the name caught on, and the welfare state is what we talk about. But the name itself, I think, gives rise to a number of institutions. Let me say what I mean. First of all, what we call the welfare state is not primarily about welfare, and certainly not primarily about welfare of the poor. It's about social insurance and social services and social rights, and particularly about the social regulation of economic action. The chief beneficiaries of which are not the poor, but rather the middle classes, and particularly those in employment, and of course corporations and capital and employers. Nor is the welfare state necessarily about the state or state institutions. It's true, of course, that welfare state programmes are legislated and they're funded by government, They depend for the most part upon taxation and upon legal compulsion to make them possible. But services and benefits that these programmes provide need not be administered by state officials. In many European countries, the administration of social security of social insurance, the delivery of benefits is devolved to religious and voluntary associations. In Canada, for example, health care is privately provided, although paid for from government insurance. And in the USA, in what people call the hidden welfare state sometimes, a great deal of tax-funded welfare is actually delivered via private employers as an aspect of employee compensation. never seems to anyone as if it's a welfare transfer, but that's exactly what it is. It's just that the the beneficiaries tend to be highly placed corporate employees rather than um, the middle classes. Nor is the welfare state an appropriate way to describe the state as a whole, as if the totality of central and local government were taken up with the task of welfare provision. What I mean is that no modern state is a welfare state, not Britain in the 1950s and 1960s, not Sweden in the 1970s, properly used The concept only ever refers to a specific sector of governmental uh, activity, one part of a larger complex that carries out many other functions and many other heads of expenditure. On the other hand, and this I think is very significant, there is no state in the developed world that lacks a welfare apparatus, a welfare state apparatus. And all modern states devote a significant fraction, typically about 20 to 40% of GDP. Significant fraction of their budgets to the social expenditures. So, although welfare states take a variety of forms, the existence of some such sector is a feature of all developed nations. So, um, the welfare state, I think, is a misnomer. And you can see that even Richard Titmuss eventually had to use the term, but he insisted on the scare quotation marks, the welfare state not exactly something he wanted to directly address. So that's what I'll be talking about. Um, One final observation or caveat about the term the welfare state, because that's indeed the, the, the title of my talk, What is the Welfare State? I want to insist on the one hand that the welfare state doesn't exist. Only specific welfare regimes, each of them with a distinctive mix of programs and institutions, exist. Nevertheless, this evening I'm going to talk much of the time about the welfare state as a whole and the welfare state as such. In other words, kind of the ideal type uh, of the welfare state is what I want to talk about. Now I realise, of course, that welfare states operate by means of a complex amalgam of different institutions and different programmes. And the policy debate, the, 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 the focus of expert attention and research and argument is properly and characteristically about the specific details of particular programs. That's what it has to be about. But, and I also realize, of course, that welfare state regimes take a variety of divergent forms. Sweden is not, Germany is not, Australia is not, the US is not, the UK. Welfare regimes vary. I know this. But my concern in this talk is not with program description and not with international comparison. What I want to talk about is the fundamental and the distinctive character of the welfare state as a mode of government, and I think that we, we, who we academics, we social policy scholars, we um, LSE audiences, don't talk enough about the welfare state as a whole for reasons that I want to uh, to mention in passing. Obviously, it's appropriate for Experts to focus on the details of this program or that. And and that indeed is the basis of all welfare state um, administration and delivery and policy. But by avoiding talk about the welfare state as a whole, by avoiding general characterizations, social policy experts often leave that generalization to the welfare state's enemies, who have no hesitation in discussing the welfare state in bold, holistic terms. And the imbalance in the debate, I think, has some quite interesting and important consequences. For example, in the USA, opinion polls routinely show that there is very low support for the welfare state. But that coexists with very strong support for specific programs, such as Social Security and Medicare, which actually form the basis of the welfare state. At the same time and conversely, exactly the opposite is the case with the free market, Free market is regarded very positively by Americans, despite the fact that many of its specific characteristics are understood to be socially damaging, harmful, and a problem. So you get this imbalance, and I think that one explanation for the paradox, the welfare state in general is a bad thing, in particular is good, the the, the free market in general is a very good thing, in particular is bad. The reason for that, I think, is that while there's no end of rhapsodizing by its proponents about the free market, there's no equivalent enthusiasm expressed in general terms for the welfare state. So perhaps I think the time's come to engage at that level of abstract generalisation, even while one's aware that generalisation of that kind always have to be tethered and tied to particulars and localities and variation. So what is the phenomenon that the welfare state inadequately describes? And what would a more apt characterization be Because actually, I don't know who it was, um, Stephen, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, Um, there's a Cambridge historian who described one of the... He's written a lot about the the contest between the humanities and social sciences, Um, and he argued that one of the kind of concerns of humanities should be the striving for apt characterization, that that itself is a kind of a finding, um, a product of research that is undervalued in a way. What I want to do in this... Talk is merely go for apt characterization, not any new research findings, not any new uh, data to provide to you, but rather a way of thinking and talking about something that we often inadequately describe. So in the existing literature on the welfare state, I think there are three standard delineations, each with a different set of boundaries and each with a different kind of core conception of what the welfare state is about. First of all, um, the narrowest conception and the one that's actually preferred by the welfare state's opponents is the welfare state understood as welfare for the poor. This refers to the most problematic and the least popular aspects of the system, namely non-contributory means-tested relief programs, such as in the USA, temporary assistance for needy families. In this country, uh, income support or housing benefit or council tax reduction. And this is the conception, welfare for the poor, relief, non-contributory, means-tested assistance. This is the conception that's invoked in American political discourse and increasingly in this country whenever the welfare system or welfare is mentioned. The second conception is the one that's the analytical focus of most comparative social policy, and it's a focus on what I think of as being the core fundamental institutions of welfare state systems. Um, That's to say social insurance and social rights and social services. These include um, the mainstay social insurance programs, national insurance in this country, social security uh, in the USA, Medicare, National Health Service, and so on, all of which account for, or these account for, the greatest part of government social expenditure. But there's a third conception of the welfare state, um, a conception of the welfare state as government at the level of the economy and at the level of the population. And this is a a little less familiar, although it's actually uh, more or less standard in political economy and also in institutional sociology. And what it highlights, not welfare for the poor, not even social insurance, but rather the government's fiscal and monetary and employment policies and their role in welfare state government as well as the biopolitical policies that secure the health and the well-being of families and individuals. This last dimension, the third one, is, I think... Often overlooked in social policy textbooks, they leave it to the economists, but even in the welfare economics textbooks, they leave it to the political economists, so it's kind of shunted aside as if somehow this is not exactly the same thing as or closely enough connected to be thought of as part of the welfare state. Interestingly, um, the varieties of capitalism literature uh, mentions this and foregrounds it in, in, I think, a very appropriate way. So too does coming from a different place, Michel Foucault and his notions of governmentality. And actually, I'm going to talk about governmentality as a way of thinking about what governments do and how they do it in talking about the welfare state. But what I want to just say about these three conceptions is that instead of thinking of them as, instead of thinking of them as competing, mutually exclusive characterizations, Instead of choosing between them, I think we ought to view them as being concentric circles of welfare state government, each one forming a structurally integral element of the whole. So at the core of the welfare state, as I said, are institutions that ensure against loss of earnings, loss of earnings through unemployment or old age or sickness, ill health... And they use what Winston Churchill called the magic of averages, um, or more prosaically, risk-spreading and forced saving and consumption-smoothing, to provide stability and security in an otherwise volatile labor market and to the families that depend upon them. But this social insurance and this is very clear, if you read uh, uh, the Beveridge report, but alongside it read the the, uh, report produced by Beveridge two years later called Full Employment and a Free Society, he is absolutely clear and explicit that there is no welfare state, there is no national insurance or national health service without economic management, and in in particular without the production of full employment, which he took to be absolutely crucial to underpinning the welfare state. But right from the beginning in the Beveridge conception in this country, governing the economy... In aggregate terms, and social insurance and social assistance are all understood as one part, three parts of the same integral undertaking. So social insurance depends for its solvency on economic policies that compel contributions but also raise taxes, sustain employment, and promote growth. Social insurance simultaneously contributes to these economic ends by enhancing labor flexibility and mobility providing economic security and enabling counter-cyclical spending. And these social insurance programs are in turn supplemented by the safety net of social assistance, the means-tested non-contributory benefits. Uh, the, the, the architects of the welfare state in this country and the New Deal in the USA always imagined that social assistance would wither and die as everyone became insured and there was no need for coverage of the uninsured. Of course, transformations in the economy, and family, and indeed in government policy, since then have made social assistance a much larger part of welfare states everywhere. In fact, but particularly in the UK and the US, but social assistance is um, itself a form of countercyclical economic spending, and it's necessary to, as it were, sustain and extend social insurance beyond the labour market. And again, it's integrated into the economic management of the. Uh, the nation. So none of these none of these three sectors can exist long without the others, each is a structural support for one and each. So this is a definition I guess of the welfare state that I'll be thinking of, I'll be using, I won't go through it with you, but basically the the the, the idea of what the welfare state is governing the economy and the population in the interests of security and stability and welfare utilizing specific tools, those of insurance, economic management, social provision and together with legal regulations and forms of expertise and compulsion required for the operation. Okay, I mentioned before that I want to somehow utilize the notion of governmentality to frame and think about the welfare state. And that might seem um, like a a wrong turning to take, and one's trying to make something in the welfare state accessible and to understand what it is, why use a term which most people, even when they think they can use it, don't quite understand how to define or to explain. Let me try my hand at explaining what governmentality is and why it's useful for thinking about the the welfare state. Welfare states, of course, vary over time, and they vary across national spaces. But what I want to suggest, what I've already indicated, is that beneath this variation, there is, I believe, a common set of governing principles, a shared rationality, a shared set of formulae for exercising power, organizing and administering um, security and relief and so on. And this shared rationality, it's what I want to describe. I think it's distinct in as much as the welfare state historically um, emerged around this rationality. And that wherever there are welfare states, this is still at the core of what they do. Even though welfare states have gone through, you know, Bismarckian beginnings to neoliberal and then eventually kind of post-industrial versions. Even though they vary from social democratic to Christian democratic to liberal market oriented. All these different variants of the welfare state are still the welfare state because they're organized around these principles of thinking what government is and exercising governmental power. That's the claim that I want to make. Now, Michel Foucault's idea of governmentality is best understood, I think, as being a mentality of governing, right? A way of thinking about what government is, a way of thinking what government does, what it does it to, and how that undertaking is... um, Undertaken, how that project is undertaken. So the welfare state as a mode of government involves, I think, a specific mode of reasoning about and exercising governmental power associated with a specific set of governmental techniques and forms of knowledge and institutions. And I think that that's what's distinctive about, that's what emerges and is different when, really, from the 1890s onwards... Maybe the 1880s, you begin with Bismarck. But particularly in the 40s and 50s, when the welfare states emerged as an organized form of governmental action in all of the developed countries, I think what was driving that development, and what was at the core of it, was the set of principles. If you ask historians or if you read the historical texts and say, well, what actually defines them the moment at which the poor law became the welfare state or when the welfare state was invented, they've got a variety of different Suggestions about what was distinct. They say, well, there was the abolition of the poor law and the workhouse, or there was the emergence of government schemes for organizing the labor market, like labor exchanges or social insurance. Maybe a shift of responsibility from local to national or private to public. Maybe the changed character of social provision away from paupers uh, asking for dolls to citizens claiming entitlements. Maybe the expanded role of the state and so on. All of these, I think, are indeed concomitants of what happened. But the most specific, particular, transformative development was a shift in the way that government power was exercised and the project and the problems of governing were transformed. In other words, the most important discontinuity signalling the emergence of the welfare state in the 20th century is a change in the conceptions of the problems being addressed. And particularly new ways of conceiving the relationship between the social and the economic and new recipes for governmental action that flowed from that new way of conceiving the relationship between the the social and the economic. The new conception affects the whole population and the whole economy rather than just the poor, rather than just the marginal. So, the welfare state as a mode of governing is what I would describe as a form of macroeconomic and macro-sociological governance, directed and overseen by the nation-state. Managing risk, securing employment, ensuring income, policing families, improving the health of the population, all of these become proper objects of state action, undertaken at the aggregate level and the result is a form of economic and social governance that's more comprehensive and more routine and more ambitious than any prior form utilizing nationwide apparatuses of insurance economic management and normalization that have no historical equivalents so despite the various worlds of welfare and despite the historical changes in welfare state programmes and objectives and criteria and so on, I think it is this distinctive rationality of governing that continues to animate the social and the economic policies of our kind, of our time. Problems of the welfare state. One of the things I, I, I'm writing a little book about the welfare state, one of the things I don't want to do is to evade or avoid talking about the welfare state's chronic problems. What I'd rather do is explain them and, as it were, contextualize them so that we begin to think of them as problems but compared to other kinds of problems rather than compared to non-problematic social arrangements of which there are zero in the real world. So let me say a little bit about problems of the welfare state, where they come from. The basic function of the welfare state is to modify the economic outcomes and the social relations that a free market society would otherwise create. So what this means is that the welfare state is, by design, a pragmatic problem-solving device rather than anyone's ideal social relationships. Unlike its historical competitors, free market capitalism on the one hand, democratic socialism on the other, The welfare state lacks utopian ideals and lacks a pantheon of heroic proponents. It was a product not of revolutionary idealism but rather of piecemeal reform, political coalitions and compromise solutions. Its underlying principles, the ones I described before, were created not by visionary philosophers but by civil servants and social scientists and government committees. Given this genealogy, It's unsurprising that the welfare state rarely commands unbridled enthusiasm. So, this is familiar. Leftists always complain that it's too mean, too controlling, too moralising, that it's no substitute for a radical redistribution of wealth and property. Rightists, right-wingers, complain that it's too generous, insufficiently disciplinary, that it undermines enterprise, demoralises recipients, creates an overbearing tax-and-spend state. Welfare benefit recipients themselves would mostly prefer to have a decent paying job, and they bridle at the humiliations and the stigma that comes with mean-tested benefits, and taxpayers complain they're working hard to pay for others who don't, and so it goes on. In other words, the welfare state is everyone's second best solution. If markets and families could be made to work of their own accord, there'd be no need and there'd be no demand for a welfare state. The welfare state ideal paradoxically is a welfare state that tends towards zero. So why is this? Why is the welfare such a why is welfare state and welfare such a problematic ambiguous ideal? And why are welfare state practices so plagued with chronic problems? Well, one reason is that the relationship between the welfare state and market capitalism is simultaneously a necessary relationship and a contradictory relationship. It's necessary and it's contradictory at one and the same time. In modern societies, privately determined economic action and publicly determined social protection are shackled together. They're shackled together in a contradictory unity in which each aspect work simultaneously to sustain and make possible and at the same time undermine and make contradictory the other. The two things are necessary and they're, as it were, mutually antagonistic. And within this contradictory unity, this is really rather important, the welfare state is always the secondary institution. It's always the ancillary. It's never the primary distribution. It's never the the fundamental. Welfare state transfers are politically defined allocations their, their law, their legislation, the outcome of government policy, they modify and transform what is regarded as a more fundamental distribution, that of the market and private property and market transactions. Now, of course, if you pause to think about it for a while, both of these distributions, that of markets and private property and that of politics and transfers, are socially constructed political outcomes. It's just that they have a different kind of chronology. The the private property uh, establishment is hundreds of years old and has the kind of imprimatur of history and legitimacy, and anything that challenges that is seen as revolutionary, whereas political transfers are last year's budget and are questionable and controversial and always up for grabs. So I'm not suggesting that something's fundamental, namely the market and the other thing comes along and modifies it. They're both, as it were, modifications, nevertheless the way that we think about these things and the way that the power relations that exist shape the thinking of these things makes the case that the welfare state is the secondary modification of a primary distribution which is the market, which is private property which is ownership and choices of owners so although a well adjusted and a high functioning welfare state can enhance a nation's economy that Expansive welfare state can only survive if it's underwritten by authority, economy and sustained economic growth. And that's the kind of priorities that are always in focus with real governments in real time. Welfare state, in that sense, is always... Welfare state government, for that reason, is always a delicate balancing act. It's always a matter of modifying economic outcomes without obstructing enterprise, protecting labour without reducing employment, limiting exploitation without provoking capital flight, and so on and so on. It's also, the welfare state, it's also always a regulatory challenge. Welfare state government seeks to improve social and political controls, I beg your pardon, seeks to impose social and political controls on economic processes and family processes that all too easily escape, evade, respond perversely to these regulatory uh, efforts. So, there are, there it were, fundamental, what I would call system conflict problems that are intrinsic to the welfare state, characteristic to the welfare state, and basically shape the chronic difficulties that emanate from welfare state practices. They create the ongoing contradictions and periodic crises of the welfare state, and I don't have time to go into them in detail just now. I'll simply mention that the the, the, the kind of problems that one sees all the time are, on the one hand, administrative problems, social policy problems, that affect particularly social assistance. And these have been problems that have been around since the poor law, but are pretty well understood and can be modified and managed and are done better in some places than others. These are the kind of problems that the critics of the welfare state mostly attach to. But actually, there are major problems of... Adaptation. The welfare state is geared to the economy. The welfare state is geared to family life. And as family life and economic life are transformed constantly in a dynamic kind of development, the politics of social policy provision that adapts to these changes is a kind of chronic difficulty for governing. And depending on the character of the political institutions is easier or more difficult to bring about. Somewhere like the USA is chronically... Challenged in its ability to update entitlement reform or to kind of legislate a healthcare uh, provision simply because the institutions there are so dysfunctional in adapting welfare state provision, even when everyone agrees that it needs to be adapted. Other places, the Nordic countries, are much better at doing so, but they also have their ongoing problem. But the fundamental problem in the welfare state is, of course, a political one. That's to say that every new program, every new policy, every adjustment made in a welfare state transfer program or a benefits program or an insurance program is a matter of creating new winners and new losers, people that pay and people that receive, shifts in the balance of power. So the politics of the welfare state is always front and center to policy argument. Neoliberal Transformations of the welfare state over the last thirty years have been policy reforms and adaptations and sometimes even improvements. They've mostly been shifts in the balance of power. They've mostly been um, raw efforts to reassert the power of capital against the power of labor and to assert the private sector against the public sector. That the the political character of the welfare state is absolutely at the heart of what is actually a governmental undertaking, which is about administration and about technical details and about kind of designing programs that work. So there's always this tension at the heart of what the welfare state does. Let me say um, a little bit about the longer term history into which the welfare state fits. Because I began by saying that the welfare state is a distinctive modern mode of government, one that emerges really in the 20th century and that is specific and different from the welfare and economic arrangements that preceded it and that's true but for all its historical specificity as a mode of government it's also possible and I think it's actually useful and important also possible to think of the welfare state as a chapter in a much longer term history of the relations between economic action and social provision So, libertarian critics of the welfare state often refer to laissez-faire, free market, 19th century liberal world as if these arrangements were the natural condition of mankind. They view the self-regulating market, put these in inverted commas, self-regulating market as the original state of nature, and they regard government interference, again in inverted commas, as largely illegitimate and counterproductive. So that's the the story that one often hears, especially, I guess, in, in neoliberal settings. In in Well, actually, this is sort of like dumb neoliberalism. But basically, the, the argument you hear time and time again is this notion of somehow or other, there's the self-regulating market, then there's the kind of despotism and government intervention that messes things up. As if somehow there was that pristine state, maybe it was, you know, around 1834 and the new poor law or something, I don't quite know Um, and then since then the welfare state and so on has intervened illegitimately producing all these perverse and um, negative consequences but actually and obviously in the broad sweep of history 19th century laissez-faire capitalism was very much an exceptional case and far from being natural Free market economic arrangements had to be forcibly established by government action, by action that overturned customary laws and traditional collective safeguards and rights in common that working people had long enjoyed. Traditional societies, to give one name to this huge mass of pre-capitalist social formations, traditional societies did not have distinct economies, again in inverted commas, that were set apart and organised according to a purely economic logic of profit and loss. They did not regard market exchanges as transactions that ought to be governed solely by the laws of supply and demand, nor did they separate work from the worker by treating commodified labor power as an alienable property that is distinct from the human beings who labor or the social context in which that labor is undertaken. Instead, in different ways, in different places, production and exchange were always embedded in and constrained by religious and moral and social rules that limited exploitation and protected against starvation in times of dearth or famine. Now, to point to these protections and these restraints is not to romanticise the pre-capitalist past or to represent it as some kind of merry England idyll of mutual care and support. Obviously, pre-market social arrangements were neither equitable nor democratic And in many important respects, especially for the commercial middle classes, the coming of laissez-faire, coming of the free market in the 19th century, was a liberating escape from a world in which narrow special interests used political power to secure sectional advantage. But for all their commitment, these traditional societies' commitment to group privileges and to monopolies and to rank and status hierarchies and to various forms of servitude, These communities insisted that economic action should always be subject to social and moral restraint. The coming of a a fully fledged capitalist society in 19th century Britain was the first time in human history that economic actors shrugged off these social constraints and persuaded the nation's rulers to entrust the collective welfare of all to the logic of private accumulation. In other words, the creation of a laissez faire capitalism was an economic and a social revolution. It was a departure from a long term pattern of socially regulated production and exchange. And famously, as Karl Polanyi pointed out, it was in reaction to that revolution, a kind of counter revolution, kind of um, a second act in this transformation. It was in reaction to the capitalist revolution and against the social dislocations and human disasters it created that the welfare state was first developed. And developed, as Polanyi points out, not by communists or Marxists or liberals or leftists or by social democrats or Christian democrats or by Christian reformers or by moralists, but by everyone coming from all sorts of different directions, precisely because the free market capitalism generated all these externalities, all these problems, that they created problems in every area of social life and created responses that demanded social protections of one kind or another, out of which eventually the welfare state emerged. So I guess what I'm trying to say in some elaborate fashion is that you can think of the welfare state as a kind of normal historical fact rather than an aberration. Viewed in long-term perspective, the coming of the welfare state in the 20th century does not mark the beginning of an era in which social protections overlay and interrupt economic processes. It doesn't represent a turning away from a natural order of untrammeled commerce. Instead, the welfare state is the resumption in a distinctively modern form of a near-universal pattern that had briefly been pulled apart by the emergence of free market capitalism. In other words, in the history of human societies, economic action has generally been embedded in and constrained by the norms of social and political and moral life, and the welfare state marks a return to that historical norm rather than a deviation from it. Okay. um, Yeah, I guess I have time to do this. Um, A word about the social basis of the welfare state and about how to think about it. Um, Sociologists and historians both sometimes refer to the welfare state as a kind of moral economy. That's a phrase phrase that E.P. Thompson, about whom Craig Kahuna has written notably, um, and James C. Scott and others uh, have used the notion of a moral economy. The idea is the welfare state is a moral economy imposed upon the amoral world of market exchange. And books, influential books, like The Gift Relationship by Richard Titmus or The Needs of Strangers by Michael Ignatieff, they pick up on this moral vision and they point to the altruism of the welfare state and to its embodiment of fellow feeling and social solidarity. But, I think, characterising the welfare state as moral or altruistic has the effect of simplifying and idealising the motivations that were involved in its creation And it fails to capture the complex web of values and power relations that underpin the welfare state's long-term reproduction. So, attractive and uplifting as it is, this idealized account misses some of the robust social forces that sustain the welfare state, not just in transitory moments like this one, of a kind of heightened idealism. This one I'm pointing to the the slide, the spirit of 45, but also sustained the welfare state through prolonged periods of crisis and conflict. The motives that led to the, the, the creation of the welfare state were as varied as the political actors that took part in that process. So welfare was provided as a matter of right or social justice, but also in exchange for votes or for loyalty to the state or to avoid trouble, Social insurance promoted security, but in most of Europe and most of America, it also upheld occupational hierarchies, status inequalities. Welfare regimes were designed to civilize and to humanize capitalism, but also to make it more efficient and more resistant to fundamental change. Social services were designed to promote citizenship and positive liberty, but also to counteract degeneration and improve the race. And actually one of the things that one forgets very quickly is that people like Beveridge, for example, were very much in the eugenic society, were very much at the forefront of mechanisms for improving the unfitness of the race of the British Isles. And these kind of conceptions were very much at the heart of welfare state. Fabian, think of Sidney Beatrice Webb, think of George Bernard Shaw. Basically this kind of understanding what the welfare state was needs to be de-idealized in some important way. Not to, as it were, reduce its moral uplift in capacity, but to understand how it survives even the amoral periods, even the non-ideal period. Finally, benefits were paid to secure workers, feed their families, but also to stimulate demand, to keep money circulating, to promote investment, and to sustain capitalist commerce. So, to make an obvious point, the welfare state has always been about economic efficiency as well as social equity. And a related point that it's always served the interests of the rulers as well as the ruled. So to be for the welfare state, despite these kinds of locations, to be for the welfare state is not, therefore, to be on the side of the angels. It's to be in favor of the social control of economic processes... Rather, in favor, rather than being in favor of entrusting these processes to the private choices of economic actors. Nor does being for the welfare state mean being against capitalism. Welfare state institutions are, as John Maynard Keynes, who sadly was not an LSE professor. I don't know what you were thinking of back then. <laughs> um, but no, he, debated, no. he debated with one. What's his name? Hayek? <laughs> yes. Um, bad choice. Um, so... <laughs> Not as being for the welfare state mean being against capitalism. Welfare state institutions, as Maynard Keynes himself pointed out, are collective action techniques for the management of collective, for for capitalist market processes, not for the destruction. Basically, the welfare state is how you make capitalism more efficient. Reduces unpredictability, its uncertainty, its booms and its slumps. Ways that make it more socially and economically sustainable in that sense. I might also say, and, and, and here I'm kind of referencing um, recent research on the Swedish welfare state, although this is something that all Swedes always know. To be for the welfare state is not to be, as it were, for the collective and the communal and against the individual and the autonomous. It's not a way of cancelling freedom, as the, the American uh, rhetoric often suggests. Sweden's welfare state, to take a very telling example, because it's the most decommodifying, most expensive, most expensive, um, one in the world um, or at least you know, in the Nordic countries it was the first and now it's the second but anyway Swedish welfare state one of you probably know it's not an expression of a collectivist culture nor does it produce collectivist outcomes to the contrary the Swedish welfare state is a collective means of maximising individual autonomy the autonomy of the employee vis-a-vis the employer and of family members particularly women vis-a-vis the family and it's not surprising to find that on all the evaluations of or all the research testing uh, social values, the Nordic countries are the most individualistic of anywhere in the world. And this is, you know, this is produced by their welfare state, enabled by their welfare state, channeled through their welfare state rather than destroyed by the welfare state. Okay, the, the so we're concluding section of what I want to say merely sums up in a sociological theorem the argument that I want to make throughout. Um, And the argument is this, that the welfare state is not a policy option that we're free to adopt or reject at will, nor is the welfare state a phase of post-war history that we're now leaving behind. The welfare state is instead a fundamental dimension of modern government, absolutely integral to the economic functioning and the social health of capitalist societies. And we can make this claim, I think, in the most concise form by stating that in such societies, in modern developed capitalist societies, the welfare state is what Emile Durkheim described in the Rules of Sociological Method as a normal social fact. And I need to emphasize that for Durkheim, normal doesn't mean necessary evil. Normal means essential, integral, crucial to the social functioning of the organisation in question. So normal in the sense of the physiology of a normal human being looks like this. And there's no health without that particular physiology. Okay, so Durkheim talks about um, a a normal social fact, doesn't talk about the welfare state. He talks about normal social facts having two criteria you can decide whether a sociologist can ascertain whether a social fact and institution is normal or abnormal for that kind of society by reference to two criteria one is is the social fact in question does it exist in all such societies at that stage of the development, and secondly, is it bound up with the functioning of that society that the the actual I didn't. I didn't put the actual text, but but his. I, I've summarised in rather more um, accessible English what it is that he formulates in the rules. So these are the two questions. It, to be normal, uh, it has to be present in all such societies and integral to the functioning thereof. So the first question is really easy to answer. The welfare state does indeed exist in some version or other, in every developed society that has an industrial or post-industrial economy. And that continues to be true even after three decades of anti-welfare state neoliberal policies in the US, the UK, and throughout the developed world. The second test is more complicated and more theoretical. How can we show that the welfare state is essential to the functioning of developed capitalist societies? How can we demonstrate, as Durkheim would have put it, that it's bound up with the fundamental conditions of social life? That's a theoretical question, not an empirical one. To answer it, I think we need to recall some of the harsher characteristics of capitalist economies and competitive markets. Features that we often forget precisely because the welfare state moderates and obscures them most of the time. Modern societies are capitalist societies. They are, to paraphrase Wolfgang Striek, who actually was a speaker at this uh, university very recently, capitalist societies are, to paraphrase, societies that have set up their economies in a capitalist manner and in so doing have, and this is important, have entrusted the vital task of material provision upon which all human life depends. They've entrusted that task to private economic actors To capitalist firms whose actions are oriented towards the accumulation of capital and whose actions are undertaken on the basis of private calculations of utility for that particular actor. That's what capitalism is. Now, capitalism, it should be said, is a tremendously powerful system of production and exchange. No other economic system can compare in terms of its sheer productivity, technical innovation, dynamism. Similarly, open markets have their virtues. They are remarkable arrangements for generating choice and communicating information and promoting certain kinds of freedom and equality. And the expansion of trade and commerce has, if historians are to be believed, contributed to the softening of manners, to the expanded scope of solidarities, to the civilizing of nations. In all these vital respects, capitalist economies have been an enormous boon to human welfare, but there's also a fundamental sense in which capitalism as a system of economic action is profoundly antisocial. Societies that allow economic life to be governed by the logic of private profit and market competition are necessarily societies at risk. Societies that are prone to undirected rapid change, to concentrations of wealth, socially damaging inequalities, crises of accumulation, and periodic economic collapse, sometimes on a world scale. If one was giving this lecture in 2007, you might have to, as it were, remind people of history. This is still our lived experience. The chief characteristics of capitalist economies, capitalist societies are not, are uncertainty, undirected change, insecurity, socially damaging, externalized, the idea that capitalism is about equilibrium is an artefact of economic theory. It's not a feature of real-world economies. They are, on the contrary, generative of unpredictability, underrated change, insecurity, uncertainty, unequality, inequality, and socially damaging externalities. So what Schumpeter meant when he talked about capitalism as a system of creative destruction, leaving a tale of disruption in its wake. But, and maybe one would say ironically, at the same time, capitalist action, profitable capitalist action, itself requires a supportive social environment and an enabling material infrastructure. Capitalist action needs a socialized, educational—I uh, beg your pardon, a socialized, educated, healthy workforce, and it needs the functioning families and schools and healthcare systems that produces that. It needs a depend- dependable supply of raw materials and resources. A transportation infrastructure, a population of consumers, a stable political environment. All these things are necessary to capitalist action, but left to its own devices, capitalism tends to destroy these essential social supports. Its tendency is to commodify, to consume, to expand and to destroy all the obstacles that stand in the way of accumulation. And these capitalist Accumulation processes produce disastrous side effects as witness the current threats to the climate, to natural resources, to family life, to physical economic health of populations. Market capitalism is, to quote Wolfgang Strick again, an inherently self-destructive social formation, which is protected from these self-inflicted dangers by the operation of anti-market and market-moderating processes. So the paradoxical one might say the dialectical consequence is that capitalism depends and depends vitally on the presence which is essential but never guaranteed of effective opposition to it. In other words to avoid self-destruction capitalism needs a set of countervailing forces and the welfare state is the collective name that we give to these forces the social regulation of markets, the social insuring of workers, the public provision of social services and protections, in short, the welfare state, in one or other of its variants, is our established means of restraining the antisocial dynamics and the destructive externalities that are the essence of free market capitalism. So critics of this arrangement, critics of the welfare state, describe it as being a hindrance to economic vitality, But the Durkheimian sociological analysis I've just sent out suggests the exact contrary, that the welfare state is an essential means of sustaining the vitality of capitalism. So welfare state programs may be, and they are, inherently problematic and non-ideal, but they're also an essential counterweight to the non-ideal and problem-prone capitalist economies that couldn't exist without them. So once we establish that social fact and put an end to the destructive dismissal of the welfare state project, we can get back to the real questions and the real problems of policy design and program adaptation. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you very much, David. And now let me call on Nikki Lacey.
2: Thank you very much. Is that microphone working all right? First of all, let me... Yes, come, and sit, come and sit down. I'm not, I'm not going to take any of the discussion time by even walking to the, um, to the podium, but let me just uh, add my thanks to, to David for... A, Coming, so it's wonderful to have you at the LSE and um, fantastic lecture. Wonderful to see how your work has come back to the welfare state. Well, many of us remember your first book, *Punishment and Welfare*. It's interesting to see you, you coming coming back to those issues. So, um, it's really gilding the lily to call me a respondent. I'm simply going to make three brief points by way of getting the discussion going and putting some issues on the agenda. So the, the first point I wanted to make about your very rich lecture, David, is just to see if you wanted to say any more, or anybody else wants to, uh, to come in on the question of institutional variation, which you mentioned quite a lot but didn't really uh, get much down to. Uh, so what, as it were, we might call the Eusta esping anderson uh, agenda, because it seems to me that you're, you're making a very strong argument that it is... Legitimate To talk about the welfare state in a generalized way in terms of some, some sort of key principles or rationalities of governance, just as Esping uh, Anderson was talking about welfare capitalism. And I would have thought that his, you know, analytic linkage of welfare and capital together in that way is very sympathetic to you. But I just wonder how much weight you would want to give to the essential point of Esping Anderson's argument, as I take it to be, which is that while he, I think, would absolutely agree with you that um, the welfare state has emerged to, to resolve certain tensions that are produced by capitalist economies, nonetheless, the ways in which countries do so find equilibria uh, through welfare state arrangements, has taken very different forms and that those forms, those differences persist even in the era of so-called neo- neoliberalism. So that's, that's the first point. Secondly, uh, exploiting, abusing indeed, the privilege of the respondent not to have to stick to one coherent theme. And my second question in a way goes in the opposite direction and it's really the historical point. Now you, you used... Um, I think, very sensibly, you tried to have your cake and eat it by, by sort of saying that the welfare state is a very historically specific phenomenon, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean, if we conceptualise it quite generally, that we can't see origins going back into things like the poor law and so on. Um, and I think that's absolutely right, but I just wonder about, I think I want to voice a little bit of scepticism about the idea of a world, a sort of exceptional historical era of laissez-faire capitalism in the sense that wouldn't we think of things like the Factories Act as part of, in some sense, the history of the welfare state? I mean, you know, so speaking as a criminal lawyer, in a way, the era that in a way is the, the era of laissez-faire capitalism in this country is also the era of the sort of efflorescence of the whole regulatory wing of the of the criminal law, um, facilitated through institutional developments like the, the summary jurisdiction. So that's number three, number two. And number three is really just a, a cheeky question about, about uh, the relationship with your first book. It's, it's become very... Uh, common to argue, and I think it's a really interesting argument, that um, in our current economic conditions we're seeing a sort of realignment of welfare mechanisms and penal mechanisms in governmental rationality and practice. Um, If we have the sort of general idea of the welfare state at a high level of abstraction that you're arguing from, is there any sense in which we could argue that bits of the penal system are part of the welfare state.
1: Thank you. (laughs) So the answer to the last one is yes. Um, (laughs) So um, thank you very much indeed, Nikki, for these comments. Um, And I'll I'll answer them in the order you um, stated them. So so that Esping Anderson's, those of you who know the welfare state literature know this one very well because it's a classic in the most cited text. Um, his differentiation of three worlds of welfare, that's to say three um, ideal types of welfare state regimes, um, and their characteristic varied um, organization of institutions and hierarchy of the extent to which um, welfare decommodifies people's existence so that they can exist outside of the labor market they don't have to sell their labor in order to survive. Um, the, the quality of social rights, the extent of social provision, and so on, varying on the one hand from uh, the social democratic regimes in the, the Nordic countries to uh, the other extreme, the liberal market conforming regimes of the USA and New Zealand and Australia in different ways, Canada. And increasingly the UK, which has like migrated into that camp. I and mean, in the middle, a different, more the Christian democratic one, which is much less decommodifying or much less defamilializing, actually. Actually, as it were, sustains traditional families rather than releases um, women and individuals from these families. These variations and the hundred other versions of typologies of comparative social policy um, all have their uses and all answer the questions or or are decent efforts at answering questions that are legitimate and important and to be posed. So if one was to ask, you know, what's the difference between the the US and the UK or the UK and the German and the Swedish and the German, these kind of ideal types are the first step in answering these questions. Um, But I think of theory and concepts as being pragmatic Tools oriented to particular inquiries. Um, and I think that, that there's the inquiry that I'm undertaking right now, which is to, to say, is there something distinctive about all welfare states that separate them from prior forms of economic and social arrangements, but are the family resemblances that make each of them a form of the welfare state rather than different kinds of things? So, for example, Sweden is not socialism as contrasted to US capitalism. They both are forms of... He says welfare capitalism. Unfortunately, in the U.S. that has a different connotation. Welfare capitalism meant, as it were, a corporate response to um, price controls and to uh, compensation packages in in the middle of the 20th century. So I can't use that term. I prefer maybe talk about the social state. That might be a better term than welfare state. But his differentiations um, are important for his purposes. My effort to focus in on one, as it were, mode of government, that is the welfare state mode of government, in all its variants has, I think, some leverage and some use in my particular project answering my particular questions, but you would have to chuck it uh, as soon as you moved on to a different set of questions. So I don't want to say this is where we should be in some general sense. This happens to be what I'm asking about. Um, The second point you make is exactly right, that that even in its heyday, even in its um, most laissez-faire, most liberal with with a kind of Manchester uh, inflection, uh, most free market character 19th century England um, was never as it were a free market society it was always a society that was which exhibited forms of social protection, um, some of these operating at the level of uh, the national government and, and UK law, like the Factory Act, for example, but also many of them operating at the municipal level as kind of various forms of social provision without which, you know, economies and capitalist ar- actors couldn't have got going. So there's never been a vision of a self-regulating free market laissez-faire society. That's always been a kind of myth and an ideal and maybe even aspiration of certain kind of social groups and economic actors, um, the Victorian welfare state is a book by Roberts Derek Roberts that that describes all of the characteristics that already existed in the Victorian era that give the lie to kind of laissez-faire and its extensive principled form. So that's exactly right. The 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 interesting question for historians is, when do these specific public interventions to restrain the market or to provide social protections. And after all, the poor law, even in its 1834 um, version, always did, you know, intervene to stop people starving. They might have to go into the workhouse to do so. Although in fact, pretty soon after 1834, most people were actually given out relief despite that being a violation of the principles of the law. Um, The question when these forms of social provision and welfare protection as it were, cumulatively or qualitatively are transformed into something called the welfare state. That's always been a question for historians. And in a way, that's a question I'm trying to answer by focusing on this notion of what it is that government imagines its problems are, what it imagines its practical objects that it acts upon are, and what it imagines the, the, the forms of expertise and technologies with which it acts are. So that, that's, for me, why this is a useful notion. The, the, the third question you asked about the, um, the relationship of the penal and the welfare. Um, so <laughs> I've, I begin, so those, those of you who um, uh, need to take a step back with Nikki and I, um, or with Nikki and me, have to realise that I also spend much of my time arguing in the world of sociology of punishment and criminology and crime and justice about what's happening with the penal system, what's happening with, you know, prisons or the death penalty or patterns of social control um, of criminal offenders. And one of the things that's been argued very vociferously and because it was Louis Vuitton behind it very energetically um, is is the notion that there's been in, you know, the period from the 80s through the 2000s, a shift from the social to the penal state. Um, and that we used to be in the social state, now we're in the penal state. This, for me, is you know, grossly exaggerated at both ends, that, that we haven't left behind the social state, and we aren't living in a penal state, but there clearly has been an expansion of you know, uh, penal mechanisms. There's been mass imprisonment. There's been an extension of controls um, over criminal offending. At the same time, there's been... Mostly at the margins, actually, or most, mostly in the kind of tools for governing the economy, there's been transformations in the welfare state, but not its abolition. That's kind of crazy. Um, so the, the, the big story about there's been a move from a social state to a penal state seems to me to be like, let's just erase that and start again. That's, that's not a helpful way of thinking of things. On the other hand, if you're asking, or if one asks, um, does the welfare state, as I understand it, involve and, and, and entail and embody um, institutions and practices that we think of as part of criminal justice, then yes, for sure. And the most obvious one is something like probation or social work of offenders, where there's an enormous overlap between, as it were, social work and, and policing of families and criminal justice and court decisions, so, so for sure if you, if you like me come from Scotland then the notion of a generic social work department in which you know, the same social worker team deals with criminal offenders at the court and deals with you know, families in trouble and educational problems, then you know that that overlap exists because institutionally it's been determined
0: Alright, let's invite some questions from the audience even though I'm itching to ask a question of my own <laughs> Look at the self-restraint, please. Mm-hmm. And may I ask, let's, well, take two or three questions, and please identify yourself when you speak. and Take the
3: microphone. Well, yes, uh, I'm Robert Reiner, and I'm an emeritus professor in the Law Department. Um, I also wanted to do something like what Nikki did, which is to compare what I thought was a fantastic account that I think I'll be meditating on and thinking on for a long, long time and look forward to the book. Um, but it seems to me that it takes... almost a polar opposite approach to the one you took in Culture of Control, in that, and the kind of question that, uh, not about crime and punishment, but about um, political economy and culture in general, the the, the kind of approach that comes from the Culture of Control, I wonder how you would answer the questions that you do answer there when you've uh, constructed this, in a sense, opposite argument of constructing an ideal type and arguing that it's, in some sense, essential. What that leaves out, it seems to me, is, without going to the extremes of what are saying that there's fundamental transformation, something has happened that you trace so effectively in the culture of control. And the world of discourse and of economic management and um, so on, is fundamentally different now than it was in the 1940s and 1950s. It's not to say that the welfare state has been eliminated or, uh, uh, you know, it's been transformed, exactly as you say. But there has been this massive change, and it seems to me very difficult to explain um, in the terms of saying that somehow the welfare state is... Almost a functional prerequisite. It reminds me a bit of the arguments of certain Marxist economists in the seventies, arguing at the beginning of the development of neoliberalism, you know, Ian Gough and uh, James O'Connor and so on, that actually that right agenda, as it were, wouldn't never be able to take place because. Uh, was in fact an essential prerequisite. Now, you've developed a much more coherent argument, a much more convincing argument, and as with any Durkheimian notion of normality, we don't know what is normal, where you draw the line, that it can't be eliminated. But nevertheless, I think it'd be very di- there is this big, big, big puzzle of how do we explain the transformation in beginning in the 70s away from Keynesianism, and the popularity of the welfare state to something else.
0: Okay, I think that question is big enough that I withdraw my previous idea of taking two <laughs> or three. David.
1: <laughs> um, so that, that's a really interesting question for me to think about. And um, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't quite myself focused on the sort of polar opposite nature of my thinking from one project to the next, like, lurching around, thinking this, then thinking that. But um, I can, I think, frame it this way. What, what I... Want to do is something that can be framed under, you know, Foucaultian notion of a history of the present. Um, I want to understand, as it were, how we're governed today and how we live, how we live today um, under government. And the 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 cultural control book was certainly asking questions about the transformations that have occurred um, since the nineteen seventies. And here, what I want to ask is, well, what has stayed the same? And what's the relationship between, as it were, processes that are long-term and processes that are short-term? So I have no interest in slighting or minimizing or or, or ignoring the major transformations in our world that that new-right, neoliberal, neoconservative social forces have brought about. Um, And interestingly, of course, they've had their biggest impact and they've had most critical purchase precisely in these welfare state societies where the welfare state is least as it were, uh, an aspect of social government, government and the economy, that, that, that one feels the critique of welfare most powerfully where welfare is minimised rather than where it's maximised uh, for reasons to do with its kind of role in the positive aspects of economic production rather than uh, its kind of restraint in them. However... Craig once wrote uh, an essay, I've forgotten its title, but it was on about, post- it was about post-modernity. And one of the things that he was writing was that, that all of the excitement about the post-modern um, tends to operate in a kind of um, amnesia about the, the, the social forces that we think of as being classically modern, like bureaucracy or capitalism or organisation, that have not been left behind, on the contrary, coexist with the new forms of social life or identity politics or uh, organization and so on i want to do something similar Um, dismayingly um though i think symptomatically when michel foucault in his uh final years uh, writing about government and governmentality and about the present when he began to move to away from you know he was come more comfortable in the kind of classical age um and in the 19th century When he began to move to the 20th century, the 1960s and 70s when he was writing, 1970s and 80s when he was writing, instead of writing a history of the present that focused upon the actual mechanisms that governed France in in that period, which were very much welfare state mechanisms, he focused on the critique thereof in the form of neoliberalism. And he wrote about order liberalism and he wrote about Chicago liberalism. And he was fascinated by this analysis and much of the kind of post-Foucauldian enthusiasm, the governmentality scholarship, has taken up neoliberalism and studied it in great loving detail um, as if that's now, as it were, the horizon and the central tendency of who we are and what we do, when in fact neoliberalism is a critique of welfare government that is, as it were, folded into and modifies welfare government rather than has displaced it. So, in, in some sense, what I want to do is periodize and frame the present in that larger context and ask the question, what has and hasn't changed as a result of the kind of transformations I was describing in the culture of control? So, sometimes one's asking about change, sometimes one's asking about continuity. The, the, the big picture has to be a combination of these things. I mean, nothing is unchanged by transformations. Everything exists in a new set of structures and relationships. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the core of the welfare state as a project, governing the economy and the population, as a technology, social insurance as its mainstay, um, and, and most of the other things, too, are not erased by neoliberalism rather they are you know uh, there are different kind of understandings of what the economy is and how it can be governed there's different understanding of social assistance and how it should be regulated and disciplined but by and large it's the same undertaking, undertaking with a different politics different ideology rather than a new way of governing that would be my thinking right now and this project is, is about let's you know enough with neoliberalism already um, let's frame it in terms of what has and hasn't changed that, that that would be how I would think about it it's very helpful to remind me that I was as it were all about neoliberalism neoconservatism in one book not so much anymore
0: okay the gentleman in the back about three rows in the back gray shirt Can someone get him the microphone
4: Thank you. Uh, Tom Schuller, formerly of the University of Edinburgh. Um, My question, I think, follows on from the the previous one, in a way. Uh, David, your three aspects of the welfare state, welfare for the poor, social insurance, governance. How does uh, the capture of the welfare state by the rich, or the regressive nature of a lot of the welfare state, which you glancingly alluded to, and which... Adrian Sinfield, your former colleague, did a lot of work in the previous generation. How do you fit that into those three categories? And, and perhaps the question that follows on from that is, is there a point at which welfare states become so distorted in the impact that they have, either functionally or socially, that you could no longer regard them as welfare states, in the sense in which we normally understand them.
0: Oh, you, know. you want to... What? Either way, let's take a couple, because we're going to run out of time in just a minute um, here. So, yeah, go ahead, that's fine.
5: Yes, um, I'm, my, my name is Christian, I'm a PhD student here.
1: Um, I want to ask you about, you, you, you talk about uh, welfare state as an object in a turk way and as a mentality in a Foucauldian way. And I I see some maybe contradictions between the both because an object in the Durkheimian way is something that you face. It's something that is there and that is even against you. You cannot do anything about it. But a mentality is something that you can use to think. And you can be the subject of that thinking. So do you see any problem with using those different categories to name the welfare state. Okay, third question. You know the sir. answer is going to be no to that one, yeah, right? you know
0: that. So, that, you took care of that one. The man in the green shirt in the back.
5: Um, yeah, probably due to the uh, idiosyncratic nature of my graduate education, I find myself agreeing with most of the things that you say. Um, but... Um, I am still troubled by the original question and particularly how we would sort of see that and are we overlooking things that have changed so one way to think about this is to write a history of the present another is to look for kernels of possibility but also horror in emerging social institutions and social arrangements right and to some extent the history of the present can potentially blind us to kernels of the future which um, are potentially uh, something that we, we should be paying more attention to so I'm troubled by this because a lot of your argument is sort of characteristically functional, but I'm a little bit unclear about what actually are the functions that are necessary now. So a lot of the language you use is very typical of the way a lot of political economists would talk about the welfare state, um, uh, but also others. Um, And they're usually talking uh, in reference to a type of mass capitalism, which is certainly not as present today. So when you think about financialization, making reliance on primary accumulation much less important for profitability, do you really need to have all this stuff out there to make sure that the economy functions well? And on the other side, um, one of the reasons that's often explained for the, for the need, in terms of the need for the welfare state is uh, the need for political legitimacy. Um, one argument would be that actually we've substituted economic inclusion for vari- various forms of participatory inclusion. Um, uh, we include people in all kinds of discussions, but they don't actually have access to material resources. And in that context, uh, you know, are we actually dealing with something which is going to be a, a more significant shift in, than you're suggesting? All
3: right, go for
1: it. So um, I'll answer these, as it were, in reverse order. So um, Michael, who actually was a graduate student of mine and a graduate student of Craig's, Nikki, we've been slacking. <laughs> 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 Innocent. <laughs> um, so, so, notion of kernels of the future. It 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 seems to me that 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 the current phase of the welfare state development across its variant um, welfare regimes is what I would describe as like the search for welfare state 3.0. The, the basically that the classical welfare state in the post-war era um, gave way to was was transformed by neoliberal welfare state welfare state 2.0, um, and we're now in the, the kind of mode of trying to find the adaptive mechanisms that will shape welfare institutions, social insurance, labor activation, family policy, to the transformed character of the post-industrial societies in which they now operate. And, and that's a major set of problems, not least because of all the vested interests, because of the pattern of as it were, political power that operates around the current, those in employment, those in retirement, those who have the kind of vested schemes, and they Lack of interest in voting for policies that reduce theirs and maximize. Nevertheless, that kernels of the future is basically what you're seeing in welfare state social policy innovations around the world right now. And and the last chapter in the book is actually about that. It's precisely what the emerging problems for welfare states are and what the emerging solutions for them might look like. Um, the, the, The... the question that, that came second about the, the the Michel Foucault concept of mentality, which is idealized or ideal or ideational, and the, the, the Durkheimian one of social fact or social object, which is kind of hard and unchangeable. I, I, would, I would think both of these terms a little differently. So, so although Foucault uses the notion of governmentality, um, what he has in mind is something really rather concrete and specific. What are the actual um, ways of organizing a question, posing a problem, as it were, bringing into view um, an object upon which action can be taken. And what are the technologies and forms of discourse or expertise or knowledge that will organise that action? All of these things I think of as being less mental or ideal and much more concrete and material, actually. Um, In the same way, Durkheim's notion of the the social fact... um, it's true that his first... I mean, the Roto-Sociological Method is written a couple of years after his PhD thesis. The Division of Labour is his PhD thesis. Like, you know, would all of us have PhD theses that were still being read and reprinted 100 years after? Um, but that's where he is. It's a very early stage in his work, and the social fact analysis there is given a kind of clunky, positivistic um, rendering. Um, I think if, if you read his work as it develops, it's clear that social facts... Um, when he thinks about ritual and religion and the elementary forms and so on, he has a much more nuanced, much more phenomenological, much more um, flexible concept of what social facticity is, and it's not the kind of you know immovable hard object. Um, to talk, I was seeing Tom all the way through the lecture, and I'm thinking, he's frowning so hard. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really having a hard time persuading him of anything. Um, so the, the question there was about whether... The, the hidden welfare state, whether welfare state captured by the rich um, is such that, avenge, uh, first of all, how does it fit into my typology, and secondly, how is it, um, does it distort the function or the purpose or the, the, the aim of the welfare state? Um, so when I'm thinking about social insurance and social rights and social services, uh, the, the, the forms of corporate welfare that one thinks about, whether it's home mortgage uh, tax allowances or whether it's you know, the fact that you can get uh, more or less free health care or... or you know, private school tuition for your kids on a tax-funded, tax-reduced uh, top-line in, in your salary package, which is actually a huge welfare transfer that nobody ever talks about. First of all, cause it occurs through the tax code. We don't debate the tax code. Nobody reads the tax code. And secondly, because it's wealthy people, so we don't have to worry about their incentives. We know that we need to give them money to work, whereas the poor, you've got to give you know less money to work. It's kind of like people understand that. But... Um, The the fact that the USA has a large welfare state that's just going to the rich does indeed make it a very specific kind of welfare state, not one that's about equality, not one that's about uh, decommodification, one that's about social distribution – one well, that's about America. I mean, it's not a big surprise that the, um, that the welfare state you get in the USA is one that more or less reflects the balance of power and the institutional configuration of the USA. So it's not that the welfare state doesn't have a welfare state, it's not that the USA doesn't have a welfare state, nor that its welfare state has been somehow or other distorted to the point where you can't call it that. Welfare states are not about equality, necessarily. They could be about, you know, buying loyalty to the state. They could be about, you know, making capitalism work better. There's a whole bunch of things that they're about, Any total social fact and the welfare state is, you know, a massively imbricated aspect of our social and economic and family existence. Anything that operates in so many expansive ways has all sorts of values and purposes going on at the same time. So I don't think you can say that this welfare state is, you know, distorted to the extent that we can't even call it that. We need perhaps Esping Anderson typologies that will tell us that the U.S. welfare state is a liberal market conforming one and doesn't look at all like the social democratic decommodifying one in the Nordic countries. That's the answer to that question.
0: All right. For all of those who didn't get a chance to answer your questions, uh, ask your questions, I feel your pain because I didn't either. <laughs> um, but, but alas, it's already after 8 o'clock and it's time that I need to call the event to an end. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, David. Thanks to all of you.